This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Hello, I'm Carmen Pate, your host for today's podcast. Have you ever looked around you and at your own life and thought, I don't think this is the way it's supposed to be? Well, you're not alone. Darkness is in us and all around us, but that was not God's plan. So what happened? And more importantly, what is God's solution to return to our design? As we continue our series on a life of glory, Mark Ray will shed biblical insight on this predicament. We see it in the world, and we see it in our personal lives. Mark is Vice President of Community Development here at Grace and has a substantial history with Grace School of Theology, including being an original board of trustee member and a primary advisor from earliest days. Mark holds a Master of Biblical Studies from Dallas Theological Seminary, a Master of Divinity from Grace School of Theology. He has served churches as an associate pastor and as a lead pastor, and has served as COO of a major evangelistic ministry. Mark will soon be launching the Grace Center for Spiritual Development, and we'll be telling you more about that in the weeks to come. But for now, let's listen to Mark Ray as he addresses, it's not supposed to be this way, in A Life of Glory. A number of years ago, when Melissa and I were living in the woodlands, we had this wonderful little tree out in front of our house. It was a, it was a holly tree, and it was shaped like a Christmas tree. This happened to have been Christmas time. And Melissa got the great idea to go outside and to actually decorate this holly tree like a Christmas tree. So she's, I'm putting the lights up on the roof line, and she's out there decorating this holly tree that's in the shape of a beautiful Christmas tree. And so she's hanging lights on it, and she's hanging ornaments on it. Well, she reaches into the branches to hang an ornament, and her hand grasps onto what she thought was a branch, but it didn't feel like a branch. It felt like a snake. And she's giggling. You all are moaning. She's giggling because she knows what's coming. She had her hand on this snake, and the first thought that went through her mind was, that's not a branch. That feels like a snake. And then the next thought that went through her mind was, do I jerk my hand back real quick? Well, if I do, I could startle the snake and I could get back. I don't have no idea what kind of snake this is. Maybe I'll just pull my hand back. So she started to talk to the snake. It's okay. It's all right. Don't worry. I'm just a friend. And then the thought struck her. The last time a woman talked to a snake in a garden, (laughs) things didn't turn out so well, right? Well, that opens up this morning and what we want to talk about this morning. And I thank my wife for allowing me to tell that story. We're in the third part of a 10-part series on the spiritual life. We started three weeks ago talking about 1 Corinthians 10.31 and what it means to give glory to God, to to manifest God's character to his creation. We moved from there to the following week, last week, where we said in order to manifest his character, you have to conform to his character. And we saw that his character was one of his very essence was one of holiness, purity, that he is the holiest of the holier of the holy, that he is the one who is set apart among all else. And he says to us, be holy for I am holy. Now, If you're like me, you might have awakened this morning and said, the farthest thing from holiness, that's how I feel. I don't feel holy. And so the question then would be, well, what happened? 
Well, I want to take us back and I want us to look early on in the garden to what God did and how he created us and how it was supposed to be. And then we're going to take a look at what happened in the garden and how it wasn't supposed to be. Then we're going to take a look at the results of that. This is going to be a little bit of a tough morning because we're looking at sin. And it was a tough week for me because as I continue to dive into this over and over again, I see myself reflected in what happened in the garden. But I want to start first with what God did and how he made it, what it was supposed to be, who we were before the fall. So let me walk you through a little bit of who we were before the fall. First in Genesis 1:27, God says, I created them in my image. So first he created us perfectly. In the image of God, he created us perfectly because whatever God creates, he creates perfectly, right? Ephesians 1:4 tells us, then he created us to be holy. Before the foundations of the earth, he chose us that we should be holy and blameless in him. So not only were we created in his image, but we were created to be perfect, holy, so that we could be holy as he is holy. But God didn't stop there. He continued to pile it on. And Colossians 3, it tells us that he created us not only in his image and not only to be holy, but he created us with intelligence, with knowledge, with reasoning, and with morality. That was meant to be perfect as well. God moves from there, and in Genesis 2, 19 through 20, he tells us, as he brought the animals in front of Adam, he says that he created us to be his representatives and actually give us the responsibility and give us responsibility in his creation as he gave Adam the responsibility to name the animals. A huge responsibility. And in Genesis 1, 26, what he tells us is, you're to have dominion over my creation. Now, these are all things that God created into us. He designed us and created us not only in his image, but he created us for holiness. He created us with intelligence and morality and reasoning. He created us as his representative with a responsibility in his creation. And he created us to have dominion over his creation. All of these things separate us from anything else in his creation, right? So we were created as this incredible thing that God did that was meant to be holy and perfect. Seven times in the scriptures, it says in this early creation story that it was good. The seventh time, the perfect time, he says it was very good when he talks about creating us. That's the way it was supposed to be. Have you ever created something and then you step back and you go, wow, that was cool. It was great. You might have written a song. You might have built something. You might have done something specific, written something or said something. And you step back and you went, that was perfect. Well, you get an inkling. Just an inkling of what God might have felt like when he stepped back after he created us. And that's the way it was supposed to be. So what happened? Well, as I said before, if you, if you look at my life or you look at any of our lives, we can see that we're far from perfect. So something happened. Something happened and you look at the world. Read the papers today. Just this morning and you can tell that something happened from that perfect creation to now. There was a correspondent with the London Times a number of years ago that was compiling a bunch of research to do an article on the problems with the world then and the problems with the world now. And he completed a a series of articles. And at the end of every article, he asked this question, what's wrong with the world? And perhaps one of the most profound statements ever written by man, an author by the name of G.K. Chesterton wrote this, dear editor, what's wrong with the world? I am. Faithfully yours, G.K. Chesterton. I agree with Chesterton. That is what's wrong with the world. But how did it, how did it get there? Well, I want to take you back to Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 because this is where it all starts. 
And frankly, where it all starts is where it's continued. Out of this particular incident coming out of the garden is where it all starts. Now, for those of you that love my alliteration, you're going to get the command, the call, the crux, the choice, the crime, the cover-up, the culpable, the curse, the cross, and the casting out. Thank you very much. (laughs) That's my Dallas Seminary in overdrive, all right? We're going to start, though, with the creation. Isn't that great? This is from Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So here's God in this creative form, and he creates man out of the dust of the ground. You can ask yourself the question, where did the dust come from? God did that too. So this is an entire effort on God's part. He creates man, and then this giver of life breathes his own life into man, and man becomes a living being. So God does it all. From start to finish, the dust of the ground, he creates man and breathes life into man. And then in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, he gives the command. I want you to hear the command that God gives to the man. Chapter 2, verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This is an incredible statement because the command starts with this unbelievable blessing. And what he commands man to do is to eat of anything he wants. He commands man to enjoy the creation. Do you see the positive spin God puts on everything? He says to man, everything is a blessing to you. And there is nothing you can't partake of except this one thing, And by the way, that's for your good too. It's for your protection. Just don't eat of this one tree because if you do, you surely die. But that's in contrast to this unbelievable blessing of everything in the garden is yours. And you can partake of anything. In fact, eat freely, enjoy. My creation is yours. And remember what he's also done to man at this point in time is he's given him dominion over it. He's put the animals in it. He's made him his representative. He's made him a co-regent. He's given man every single thing there is, including breathing life into him. The bountiful blessings are there. And even the one part of that command, which is don't eat this, is for man's good, for his protection. And then comes the call, verses 19 and 20. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, And every bird of the year, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. In fact, if you go to verse chapter 1, verse 26, he says, Even to the things that creep on the ground, the creepy things, the things that give me the creeps, even those things. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So this call goes out, and God gives this incredible responsibility to Adam, to man, which is name the creatures. I'm going to bring them all to you. You name them. And when you name them, you take dominion over them. Now, remember, the command has come to man and the call has come to man, but the woman has not been created yet. So the command and the call come to man and God looks at the man and he sees he's lonely. So God provides a helper for him and he creates woman out of the rib, right? And there comes this call, name all the animals. And out of that, God also puts a helper for man in the garden. Isn't he a good God? It's an incredible blessing that's there. But then we turn to chapter 3, and now we get the crux. This is the turning point. This is the change. And I want you to hear the shift from positive to negative that goes on. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, 
lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's a couple of really great things that are happening here and a couple of really bad things that are happening here. The first thing that begins is the serpent, which is a creeping thing, right? And from Genesis 1.26, we know that man is to have dominion over the birds of the air, beasts of the field, and anything that creeps on the ground, right? We're to have dominion over that. So here comes this serpent, and the serpent comes to the... Isn't it interesting the serpent comes to the woman? And I think the reason the serpent comes to the woman is this. Who got, who got the command? Adam got the command directly from God, but who gave that command to the woman so that she knows it? Didn't come from God, it came from Adam. So you get a secondary source, and the serpent looks at the woman and says, I might find a crack here, because the command didn't come directly from God, it came through Adam. And how many of you women know that our husbands don't always give you the right communication? So the command comes from the man and goes to the woman, but the serpent looks at the woman and says, aha, here it is. And now watch what the serpent does. Remember the command is, enjoy everything, just don't eat of this. But the serpent says this, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He, be, he immediately puts doubt in, and what he puts at the focal point is the one thing God said don't do. That is so true of me. I forget all the incredible blessings that God has for me out there, and the one thing I can't have, that becomes the focal point of everything I see. And not only does it become a focal point, but it becomes a negative focal point. And then I look at it and say, God, that's not fair that I can't have that. So what Satan does is he throws in front of her to twist those words just lightly. He makes everything negative, takes the abundant blessing, puts it right into the focal point of the one negative thing that, by the way, is for our own protection. And he looks at the woman and he says, you can't have it. Now, the interesting thing about the woman is she gets part of this right. She said, the woman says, oh, we can eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. God did say we could have everything. But now watch what happens when the negative becomes the focal point. The woman said to the serpent, we can eat of the fruit, but of the tree of the fruit, it's in the midst of the garden. God said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. Did God say, nor shall you touch it? When the negative becomes the focal point, we take it to the extreme because God didn't say you can't touch it. God just said, don't eat it. So we take that negative and that negative gets big. And all of a sudden the woman's going, man, you know, maybe that isn't quite the right thing. Maybe God isn't fair. It's interesting later that the first thing she does in order to eat it is what? She has to touch it. So by her own words, by that own, that own extension, she violates that. But here we come. It continues. For God knows that in the day, he says, he says, you won't die. For God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. The serpent's exactly right. Their eyes will be opened. And they'll become like God. In other words, they're going to know the difference between good and evil. The innocence will be gone. Everything will be gone. And here's the ironic thing. These two people in the garden that are trying to get closer and closer and closer to God, the one thing that God desired, which is all of the blessing that's here that you can partake of and be close to me, now they're getting ready to partake in the one thing that will drive them away from God. And Satan knows it. He absolutely knows this is the thing that will drive them from God. And so we get to verse 6. And here comes the choice. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, I want to show you something that says Satan's strategy has never changed. There's nothing new under the sun when it comes to Satan. 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Here in Genesis chapter 3, you get the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Listen to it again. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh, she was hungry. That food looked really good. 
And she saw that it was pleasant to the eye, the lust of the eyes. She saw that it was good. That image that was there, it just looked so pleasing. Doesn't sin sometimes look really, really good? And that the tree was desirable to make one wise, to make one like God. That's the pride of life. The pride of life says, I can be God. Do you know how many religions there are out there today that say, if you do these certain steps, you can be God? That desire to be God, and they're getting ready to partake again of the one thing that would drive them away from that. God wanted them in a close, intimate relationship with him. And yet the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life will absolutely destroy that and that intimacy of relationship. So the choice is here, and it's in front of the woman. The end of verse 6 says, she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, I was talking with Herman Eamon about this the other day, and here was an interesting statement he made. He said, isn't it fascinating that when sin, we begin to contemplate sin, we think about it for a while, but then all of a sudden we make up our mind, and boom, we act. So here she is thinking about it, talking it over with Satan, thinking about those things, and all of a sudden she decides to do it, and boom, she picks it, she eats it, and she gives it to her husband. She acts quickly. Isn't that the way with sin? We think about it. We contemplate. Lord, I rationalize it. Is it good? Boom, and we act. And I'm here to tell you, Mark Twain said it this way. He said, if the consequences of sin were immediate, we might never sin. Now, I want to ask you a question, guys. Where's Adam? We have this focal point on Eve, on the woman, but where's Adam at all this time? Who got the command? Who gave the command to the woman? Now, the text doesn't say it, but I have a very strong feeling that Adam was in the garden while the woman was talking to the serpent. I can't prove it from the text, but I think he was there. But even if he wasn't there, there's no doubt he was standing right next to her when she took the fruit and ate of it and passed it to him, and he ate of it. So first, he had the command, so he knew the command better than she did. So when she at least eats of it, he could have stopped her, right? Because he said, no, 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 no. You're, you're not supposed to eat of it. And then he takes it and he eats of it, so he could have stopped himself. So at least two times he could have stopped it. I think it could have been a third time, too. I think he actually, having dominion over the creeping things, he should have picked up a stick and whacked that serpent on the head and cast him out of the garden. But I think the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life got him, too. And that fruit looked really good. And Satan put that one thing out in front of him, and it became everything. And so the crime occurs, and it occurs for both the man and the woman. Then we get to verses 7 and 8, and we get the cover-up. And watch the progression of the cover-up. This, this is so convicting for me. Oh, the progression of the cover-up. Verses, verse 7 and 8. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And, when they, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the cool of the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now think about what's going on here. First, they sin, and they know they're wrong. When I sin, do I know I'm wrong? Absolutely. I know I'm wrong when I sin. But the second thing they do is they try to cover it up, and they sew fig leaves, this, this horrible sin covering This inadequate sin covering they do, and they put fig leaves on themselves. The third thing they do is they hide from God. Now, I want to show you the fallacy of hiding from God. Who created the trees in the garden? Well, God did, but he created Adam. That's good. Who created the garden? Who created Adam and Eve in the garden? Who created the fig leaves? Who would know where they were in the garden? And so they're hiding behind the trees that God created in the garden that God created, and even the only two people in the garden. Would God not know where they are? How many times do we do that when we sin and we go, oh, I was wrong. Oops, I better cover that up. And God, you didn't see that. The cover-up that occurs is inadequate for the sin. And they try to hide from God. They know it's wrong. They cover it up and they try to hide. Now, 
verses 11 and 12, we get into what, who was culpable. And this is where it really, it almost gets comical. So the Lord God calls to Adam and says, where are you? I love that statement. Where are, like God doesn't know, right? Where are you? What is he trying to do? He's trying to get Adam to say, Lord, here I am. Boy, I blew it. I'm so sorry. Forgive me. And let's get on with living in the garden. But no, he's tried to cover it up. He knows it's wrong and he's hiding from God. So God says, where are you? Giving Adam a chance to, to respond there. And Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of that tree? And listen to verse 12. The man says, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree and I ate. Now, who does he blame first? He doesn't blame the woman first. Who does he blame first? He says, God, the woman you gave me, it's your fault. You gave me this woman. God, you're the one to blame first. And then it's the woman. So by the way, I take no responsibility in this because God, you gave her to me first. And by the way, she's very persuasive. You gave her to me first. So it's your fault first. And then it's her fault second. And then God turns to the woman and says, who did you? She says, the devil made me do it. So everybody's pointing the blame at everybody else. Everybody else is culpable except the one who commits the sin. Boy, isn't that the case with me? All the time I'm looking for somebody else to blame for my sin. When all God's really asking me to do is to come forward and say, Lord, I blew it. Well, out of the culpable and this finger pointing and blaming God first, now comes the curse. In verses 14 through 19, we get the curse. The curse comes first on the serpent, and I'm going to give you part of it now and part of it in a minute, because he says, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust. You're going to be down in the dirt. You're going to be down in the dust. That's going to be your curse. But there's a second curse, and I'll get to it in just a minute. Then he comes to the woman, and notice here how the curses come out of the blessings. The things that God chose to bless us with now become cursed. Listen to this. He says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. She was supposed to be fruitful and multiply, right? The blessing of everything, the blessing of fruitfulness was all over the garden. And now that fruitfulness will contain pain. So to be able to multiply is going to cause pain. The second thing he says to her is, your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So this partner, this comparable helper now will be at odds with her partner, because she's going to want to rule over him, and he's going to have dominion over her. Now he comes to Adam, and he says, cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forward. He says to you, you used to have in the garden everything here. It was all a blessing to you, and all you had to do was just partake of it. You didn't have to till the soil. You didn't have to grow it. Nothing. It was all yours. Here it is. And now you're going to have to till the ground. It's going to be hard labor, and out of it's going to come what? Thorns and thistles. Now let me just take a quick moment and jump ahead to Jesus Christ. Because here's this curse on the man that is thorns and thistles. And when Christ is hanging on the cross, what's on his head? A crown of thorns. Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross is going to redeem even the very first curse. And so we have a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ here. The curse continues on the man. This this is going to be, and and from dust you've come and from dust you will return. This dust that I created you out of, in dust you're going to return. So there's the curse. I want to take you to the cross real quick in verse 15. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Her seed is going to be my son, Jesus Christ. He will bruise. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here's the statement. This is the first gospel presentation ever. In the Greek, it's called the Evangelion. It's the first good news ever. And here it is. And that is voluntarily Jesus Christ 
The seed of the woman will expose his heel, and you will bruise his heel. But as he exposes his heel, he will then crush your head. He will voluntarily expose his heel, and you'll be able to bruise it, but he's going to crush your head. And here's the wild thing about it. Who is this first gospel presentation given to? It's given to Satan, and no opportunity to trust his son. That is an eternal curse, right? So this curse comes upon him. And this curse, we see Jesus Christ. And now we move to verse 21 and we see Christ again. They're sitting here with these fig leaves. And in verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So now what we get out of this is that he removes the fig leaves and he puts tunics of skin. Where do tunics of skin come from? And how do you get the skin off the animal? You have to shed the blood, right? So we get a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, even here in the garden, the one who would shed his blood for our sins, the one who will crush the head of Satan, the one who will wear the crown of thorns upon his head. And here's the fascinating thing to me. Verse 20, and Adam called his wife, his wife's name Eve. Get this real quick. All the animals come to Adam and he's to name them. And the moment he names them, he's to have dominion over them, right? He's just heard the curse that the woman is going to have this unnatural desire to lord over him, and he's going to rule over her. The minute that curse is uttered, what does he do? He gives a name to the woman. He calls her Eve. And what he's basically saying to Eve is, you think you're going to have dominion over me? I just named you. I have dominion over you. And in the midst of that sin, God removes the fig leaves, commits a blood sacrifice, and covers the sin, even that sin, with the skin of an animal. In the final verses here, they're cast out of the garden. And the amazing thing about being cast out of the garden is this. God is still gracious because what did they deserve? They deserved death. But God cast them out of the garden for their own protection. He doesn't let them back in. He casts them out of the garden and even shows grace upon grace because he allows them to till the soil, to till the ground, and to bring food and still to bear children. This wasn't supposed to happen. And if you think, well, listen to Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sin. We may sit here and think that's not fair that because of Adam's sin, I'm held under that judgment. You may be thinking that. But here's what I'll tell you, friends. If Adam hadn't sinned and I'd been in the garden, I would have. And if you're honest with yourself, you would know if I was Adam in the garden, if I was Eve in the garden, guess what I would have done? I probably would have sinned quicker than either one of them. So if you don't understand that, think about a football team. You get opposing sides that come to the line of scrimmage. If an offensive lineman jumps off sides, who gets penalized? Him or the team? The team. So here's what happens. The sin that happened in the garden gets imputed to us, according to Romans 5.12. It becomes our sin, but make no mistake, if he hadn't sinned, I would have. So we're all under that condemnation. This is not the way God intended it to be. I'm going to turn you very quickly to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you, Christ made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Let me stop right there. Our trespasses and sins caused death. Separation from the king, separation from life, they cause death. The literal translation here is that we are walking corpses. This is what sin has done to us. And because I am separated, cut off from the king and his kingdom, this is who I follow. I have no choice but to follow this. I follow first in verse 2, in which you also once walked according to the course of this world. I follow the course of this world. I follow the fads. I follow what the world says. I follow the culture. I follow what society tells me. Tell me we haven't done that down through the history and the ages. Second, we follow the prince of the power of the air. We follow Satan's rule. Why? Because we abdicated that rule in the garden. When sin occurred, we gave up that dominion. We abdicated that rule and Satan snuck right in and took it. Because the thing we were to have dominion over 
took dominion over us in the garden. And third, we're controlled by the passions of our flesh. Look at verse 3. We also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by, children, by nature children of wrath. We're controlled by these passions. We're controlled by the flesh. We're controlled by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And it says at the beginning of verse 2 that we walk this way. With intent, we walk this way. With intent and purpose, this is it. And that's not the way it was supposed to be. Amen? And because we chose and we continue to choose, sin reigns. Possibly the best way that I can tell you what the effects of sin are is this. How many of you have seen Da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper? You ever seen that painting, Da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper? We're going to put it up on screen here. Now, how many of you have seen Da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper? Well, now you've seen it, all right? I want to tell you a little story about, true story about Da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper. When Da Vinci was commissioned to, to do this painting, he started with the face of Jesus right in the center. And he scoured the Italian countryside looking for that face that would be the purest, most innocent face he could find, one of just purity and love, one of innocence that he could find. And he found a 19-year-old choir master in a little Italian town. The guy's name was Pietri Bandolini. And he brought Bandolini into his studio and began six months. He painted the face of Jesus Christ, patterned after Pietri Bandolini. When he was done after six months, he shook his hand and sent him on his way. Seven years went by as he blocked in the background, the roof line, the table, and he saved for last the face of Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. And again, he searched the countryside. He scoured the countryside for the face that would would be so hardened by crime, so hardened that in his mind would identify with the one who would betray Jesus Christ. He goes to this dark, dank prison and he finds the face. And he asked the magistrate for the ability to bring him out and bring him to his studio under guard. He comes into the studio and again, he paints his face for six months. And when he's done, he tells the magistrate he can take him back to prison. And as the man's walking out, he turns around and he says, Da Vinci, don't you recognize me? And Da Vinci says, I've never seen you before in my life. He says, I'm Pietri Bandolini. I am the one you painted seven years ago for the face of Jesus Christ. What does sin do to us? We were created to be the image bearers of God, holy, to have the responsibility of representing him to the world. The indictment on us is that because of sin, we have shattered that holiness. And the question of the morning is, what's the answer to our dilemma? You've been listening to Mark Ray. We hope you were encouraged today by Mark's message and are stirred to get into God's word so that you may grow in your knowledge and love for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Check out our podcast for previous messages in this series, A Life of Glory. Visit our website at gsot.edu to learn of the many online courses, some offered at no cost to you, and our devotionals meant to help you live the life that God intended, all for His glory. You may have friends and family who need to hear about God's amazing grace. Sharing our podcast is a perfect way to start the conversation. We're so glad you tuned in today, and remember, the love of Christ can never be earned and can never be lost. You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash saving grace. Views expressed on this podcast 
may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership.